Chapter twenty eight of France and England in North America, part three La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. France and England in North America, part three La Salle, Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter twenty eight sixteen eighty seven sixteen eighty eight The Innocent and the Guilty Father Anastase Douay returned to the camp, and aghast with grief and terror, rushed into the hut of Cavalier. My poor brother is dead, cried the priest, instantly divining the catastrophe from the horror stricken face of the messenger. Close behind came the murderers, Duart at their head, Cavalier, his young nephew, and Douay himself. All fell on their knees, expecting instant death. The priest begged piteously for half an hour to prepare for his end, but terror and submission sufficed, and no more blood was shed. The camp yielded without resistance, and Duart was lord of all. In truth, there were none to oppose him, for, except the assassins themselves, the party was now reduced to six persons, Joutel, Douay, the elder cavalier, his young nephew, and two other boys, the orphan Talon, and a lad called Barthélemy. Joutel, for the moment, was absent, and l'archeveque, who had a kindness for him, went quietly to seek him. He found him on a hillock, making a fire of dried grass, in order that the smoke might guide La Salle on his return, and watching the horses grazing in the meadow below. I was very much surprised, writes Joutel, when I saw him approaching. When he came up to me, he seemed all in confusion, or rather, out of his wits. He began with saying that there was very bad news. I asked what it was. He answered that the Sieur de La Salle was dead and also his nephew, the Sieur de Moranguet, his Indian hunter, and his servant. I was petrified, and did not know what to say, for I saw that they had been murdered. The man added that, at first, the murderers had sworn to kill me too. I easily believed it, for I had always been in the interest of Monsieur de La Salle, and had commanded in his place, and it is hard to please everybody." or prevent some from being dissatisfied. I was greatly perplexed as to what I ought to do, and whether I had not better escape to the woods, whithersoever God should guide me. But by bad or good luck I had no gun, and only one pistol, without balls or powder, except what was in my powder horn. To whatever side I turned, my life was in great peril, it is true that Larkevec assured me that they had changed their minds and had agreed to murder nobody else, unless they met with resistance. So, being in no condition, as I just said, to go far, having neither arms nor powder, I abandoned myself to Providence and went back to the camp, where I found that these wretched murderers had seized everything belonging to Monsieur de la Salle and even my personal effects. They had also taken possession of all the arms. The first words that Duart said to me were, that each should command in turn, to which I made no answer. I saw Monsieur Cavalier praying in a corner, and Father Anastase in another. 
He did not dare to speak to me, nor did I dare to go towards him, till I had seen the designs of the assassins. They were in furious excitement, but nevertheless very uneasy and embarrassed. I was some time without speaking, and, as it were, without moving, for fear of giving umbrage to our enemies. They had cooked some meat, and when it was supper-time they distributed it as they saw fit, saying that formerly their share had been served out to them, but that it was they who would serve it out in future. They no doubt wanted me to say something that would give them a chance to make a noise, but I managed always to keep my mouth closed. When night came, and it was time to stand guard, they were in perplexity, as they could not do it alone. Therefore they said to Monsieur Cavalier, Father Anastase, me, and the others who were not in the plot with them, that all we had to do was to stand guard as usual, that there was no use in thinking about what had happened, that what was done was done, that they had been driven to it by despair, and that they were sorry for it, and meant no more harm to anybody. Monsieur Cavalier took up the word, and told them that when they killed Monsieur de la Salle, they killed themselves, for there was nobody but him who could get us out of this country. At last, after a good deal of talk on both sides, they gave us our arms. So we stood guard, during which Monsieur Cavalier told me how they had come to the camp, entered his hut like so many madmen, and seized everything in it. Joutel, Douay, and the two cavaliers spent a sleepless night, consulting as to what they should do. They mutually pledged themselves to stand by each other to the last, and to escape as soon as they could from the company of the assassins. In the morning, Duart and his accomplices, after much discussion, resolved to go to the Cenis villages, and, accordingly, the whole party broke up their camp, packed their horses, and began their march. They went five leagues, and encamped at the edge of a grove. On the following day they advanced again till noon, when heavy rains began, and they were forced to stop by the banks of a river. We passed the night and the next day there, says Joutel, and during that time my mind was possessed with dark thoughts. It was hard to prevent ourselves from being in constant fear among such men, and we could not look at them without horror. When I thought of the cruel deeds they had committed, and the danger we were in from them, I longed to revenge the evil they had done us. This would have been easy while they were asleep, but Monsieur Cavalier dissuaded us, saying that we ought to leave vengeance to God, and that he himself had more to revenge than we, having lost his brother and his nephew. The comic alternated with the tragic. On the twenty-third they reached the bank of a river too deep to ford. Those who knew how to swim crossed without difficulty, but Joutel, Cavalier, and Douay were not of the number. Accordingly they launched a log of light dry wood, embraced it with one arm, and struck out for the other bank with their legs and the arm that was left free. But the friar became frightened. He only clung fast to the aforesaid log, says Joutel, and did nothing to help us forward. While I was trying to swim, my body being stretched at full length, I hit him in the belly with my feet, on which he thought it was all over with him, and I can answer for it. He invoked St. Francis with might and main. I could not help laughing, though I was myself in danger of drowning. 
Some Indians who had joined the party swam to the rescue and pushed the log across. The path to the Senes villages was exceedingly faint, and but for the Indians they would have lost the way. They crossed the main stream of the Trinity in a boat of raw hides, and then, being short of provisions, held a council to determine what they should do. It was resolved that Jutel, with Heinz, Lieto, and Tessier, should go in advance to the villages and buy a supply of corn. Thus Jutel found himself doomed to the company of three villains, who, he strongly suspected, were contriving an opportunity to kill him. But as he had no choice, he dissembled his doubts and set out with his sinister companions, Duot having first supplied him with goods for the intended barter. They rode over hills and plains till night, encamped, supped on a wild turkey, and continued their journey till the afternoon of the next day, when they saw three men approaching on horseback, one of whom, to Jutel's alarm, was dressed like a Spaniard. He proved, however, to be a Sinis Indian, like the others. The three turned their horses' heads and accompanied the Frenchmen on their way. At length they neared the Indian town, which, with its large thatched lodges, looked like a cluster of gigantic haystacks. Their approach had been made known, and they were received in solemn state. Twelve of the elders came to meet them in their dress of ceremony, each with his face daubed red or black, and his head adorned with painted plumes. From their shoulders hung deerskins wrought with gay colors. Some carried war-clubs, some bows and arrows, some the blades of Spanish rapiers, attached to wooden handles decorated with hawks' bells and bunches of feathers. They stopped before the honored guests, and raising their hands aloft, uttered howls so extraordinary that Jutel could hardly preserve the gravity which the occasion demanded. Having next embraced the Frenchmen, the elders conducted them into the village, attended by a crowd of warriors and young men, ushered them into their town hall, a large lodge, devoted to councils, feasts, dances, and other public assemblies, seated them on mats, and squatted in a ring around them. Here they were regaled with sagamite or Indian porridge, corn cake, beans, bread made of the meal of parched corn, and another kind of bread made of the kernels of nuts and the seed of sunflowers. Then the pipe was lighted, and all smoked together. The four Frenchmen proposed to open a traffic for provisions, and their entertainers grunted assent. Joutel found a Frenchman in the village. He was a young man from Provence, who had deserted from La Salle on his last journey, and was now, to all appearance, a savage like his adopted countrymen, being naked like them, and affecting to have forgotten his native language. He was very friendly, however, and invited the visitors to a neighboring village where he lived, and where, as he told them, they would find a better supply of corn. They accordingly set out with him, escorted by a crowd of Indians, they saw lodges and clusters of lodges scattered along their path at intervals, each with its field of corn, beans, and pumpkins, rudely cultivated with a wooden hoe. 
Reaching their destination, which was four or five leagues distant, they were greeted with the same honors as at the first village, and the ceremonial of welcome over were lodged in the abode of the savage Frenchman. It is not to be supposed, however, that he and his squaws, of whom he had a considerable number, dwelt here alone, for these lodges of the Senes often contained eight or ten families. They were made by firmly planting in a circle tall, straight young trees such as grew in the swamps. The tops were then bent inward and lashed together. Great numbers of cross-pieces were bound on, and the frame thus constructed was thickly covered with thatch, a hole being left at the top for the escape of the smoke. The inmates were ranged around the circumference of the structure, each family in a kind of stall, open in front, but separated from those adjoining it by partitions of mats. Here they placed their beds of cane, their painted robes of buffalo and deerskin, their cooking utensils of pottery, and other household goods. And here, too, the head of the family hung his bow, quiver, lance, and shield. There was nothing in common but the fire, which burned in the middle of the lodge, and was never suffered to go out. These dwellings were of great size, and Joutel declares that he has seen some of them sixty feet in diameter. It was in one of the largest that the four travellers were now lodged. A place was assigned them where to bestow their baggage, and they took possession of their quarters amid the silent stares of the whole community. They asked their renegade countrymen, the Provençal, if they were safe. He replied that they were, but this did not wholly reassure them, and they spent a somewhat wakeful night. In the morning they opened their budgets and began a brisk trade in knives, awls, beads, and other trinkets, which they exchanged for corn and beans. Before evening they had acquired a considerable stock, and Joutel's three companions declared their intention of returning with it to the camp, leaving him to continue the trade. They went accordingly in the morning, and Joutel was left alone. On the one hand he was glad to be rid of them, on the other he found his position among the Senes very irksome and, as he thought, insecure. Besides the Provençal, who had gone with Lyotot and his companions, there were two other French deserters among this tribe, and Joutel was very desirous to see them, hoping that they could tell him the way to the Mississippi for he was resolved to escape at the first opportunity from the company of Duot and his accomplices. He therefore made the present of a knife to a young Indian whom he sent to find the two Frenchmen and invite them to come to the village. Meanwhile he continued his barter, but under many difficulties, for he could only explain himself by signs, and his customers, though friendly by day, pilfered his goods by night. This, joined to the fears and troubles which burdened his mind, almost deprived him of sleep, and, as he confesses, greatly depressed his spirits. Indeed, he had little cause for cheerfulness as to the past, present, or future. An old Indian, one of the patriarchs of the tribe, observing his dejection and anxious to relieve it, one evening brought him a young wife, saying that he made him a present of her. 
she seated herself at his side but says joutel as my head was full of other cares and anxieties i said nothing to the poor girl she waited for a little time and then finding that i did not speak a word she went away late one night he lay between sleeping and waking on the buffalo robe that covered his bed of canes all around the great lodge its inmates were buried in sleep and the fire-treasured scalp-locks the spear and war-club and shield of whitened bull-hide that hung by each warrior's resting-place such was the weird scene that lingered on the dreamy eyes of joutel as he closed them at last in a troubled sleep the sound of a footstep soon wakened him and turning he saw at his side the figure of a naked savage armed with a bow and arrows joutel spoke but received no answer not knowing what to think he reached out his hand for his pistols on which the intruder withdrew and seated himself by the fire thither joutel followed and as the light fell on his features he looked at him closely his face was tattooed after the sinus fashion in lines drawn from the top of the forehead and converging to the chin and his body was decorated with similar embellishments suddenly this supposed indian rose and threw his arms around joutel's neck making himself known at the same time as one of the frenchmen who had deserted from la salle and taken refuge among the senis he was a breton sailor named Routet. his companion named groyer also a sailor had been afraid to come to the village lest he should meet la salle Routet expressed surprise and regret when he heard of the death of his late commander he had deserted him but a few months before that brief interval had sufficed to transform him into a savage and both he and his companion found their present reckless and ungoverned way of life greatly to their liking he could tell nothing of the mississippi and on the next day he went home carrying with him a present of beads for his wives of which last he had made a large collection in a few days he reappeared bringing groyer with him each wore a bunch of turkey feathers dangling from his head and each had wrapped his naked body in a blanket three men soon after arrived from duart's camp commissioned to receive the corn which joutel had purchased they told him that duart and lieto the tyrants of the party had resolved to return to fort st louis and build a vessel to escape to the west indies a visionary scheme writes joutel for our carpenters were all dead and even if they had been alive they were so ignorant that they would not have known how to go about the work besides we had no tools for it nevertheless i was obliged to obey and set out for the camp with the provisions on arriving he found a wretched state of affairs douay and the two cavaliers who had been treated by duart with great harshness and contempt had been told to make their mess apart and joutel now joined them this separation restored them their freedom of speech of which they had hitherto been deprived but it subjected them to incessant hunger as they were allowed only food enough to keep them from famishing 
Douay says that quarrels were rife among the assassins themselves, the malcontents being headed by Hines, who was enraged that Duart and Lyoteau should have engrossed all the plunder. Dutel was helpless, for he had none to back him but two priests and a boy. He and his companions talked of nothing around their solitary campfire but the means of escaping from the villainous company into which they were thrown. They saw no resource but to find the Mississippi, and thus make their way to Canada, a prodigious undertaking in their forlorn condition. Nor was there any probability that the assassins would permit them to go. These, on their part, were beset with difficulties. They could not return to civilization without manifest peril of a halter, and their only safety was to turn buccaneers or savages. Duart, however, still held to his plan of going back to Fort St. Louis, and Joutel and his companions, who with good reason stood in daily fear of him, devised among themselves a simple artifice to escape from his company. The elder cavalier was to tell him that they were too fatigued for the journey, and wished to stay among the Senes, and to beg him to allow them a portion of the goods for which Cavalier was to give his note of hand. The old priest, whom a sacrifice of truth even on less important occasions cost no great effort, accordingly opened the negotiation, and to his own astonishment and that of his companions gained the assent of Duat. Their joy, however, was short, for Routet, the French savage, to whom Joutel had betrayed his intention, when inquiring the way to the Mississippi, told it to Duart, who on this changed front, and made the ominous declaration that he and his men would also go to Canada. Joutel and his companions were now filled with alarm, for there was no likelihood that the assassins would permit them, the witnesses of their crime, to reach the settlements alive. In the midst of their trouble the sky was cleared as by the crash of a thunderbolt. Hines and several others had gone, some time before, to the Cenus villages to purchase horses, and here they had been detained by the charms of the Indian women. During their stay, Hines heard of Duart's new plan of going to Canada by the Mississippi, and he declared to those with him that he would not consent. On a morning early in May, he appeared at Duart's camp with Routet and Groyer, the French savages, and about twenty Indians. Duart and Lyoteau, it is said, were passing the time by practicing with bows and arrows in front of their hut. One of them called to Hines, "'Good morning,' but the buccaneer returned a sullen answer. He then accosted Duart, telling him that he had no mind to go up the Mississippi with him, and demanding a share of the goods. Duart replied that the goods were his own, since La Salle had owed him money. "'So you will not give them to me?' returned Hines. "'No,' was the answer. "'You are a wretch!' exclaimed Hines. "'You killed my master!' and drawing a pistol from his belt he fired at duart who staggered three or four paces and fell dead almost at the same instant routet fired his gun at lyoteau shot three balls into his body and stretched him on the ground mortally wounded douay and the two cavaliers stood in extreme terror thinking that their turn was to come next 
Jutel, no less alarmed, snatched his gun to defend himself, but Heinz called to him to fear nothing, declaring that what he had done was only to avenge the death of La Salle, to which nevertheless he had been privy, though not an active sharer in the crime. Liotteau lived long enough to make his confession, after which Routet killed him by exploding a pistol loaded with a blank charge of powder against his head. Duat's Myrmidon, l'archeveque, was absent, hunting, and Heinz was for killing him on his return, but the two priests and Jutel succeeded in dissuading him. The Indian spectators beheld these murders with undisguised amazement, and almost with horror. What manner of men were these, who had pierced the secret places of the wilderness, to riot in mutual slaughter? Their fiercest warriors might learn a lesson in ferocity from these heralds of civilization. Jutel and his companions, who could not dispense with the aid of the Sinis, were obliged to explain away, as they best might, the atrocity of what they had witnessed. Heinz and others of the French had before promised to join the Sinis on an expedition against a neighboring tribe, with whom they were at war and the whole party having removed to the Indian village, the warriors and their allies prepared to depart. Six Frenchmen went with Heinz, and the rest, including Jutel, Douay, and the Cavaliers, remained behind, in the lodge where Jutel had been domesticated, and where none were now left but women, children, and old men. Here they remained a week or more, watched closely by the Senes, who would not let them leave the village when news at length arrived of a great victory, and the warriors soon after returned with forty-eight scalps. It was the French guns that won the battle, but not the less did they glory in their prowess, and several days were spent in ceremonies and feasts of triumph. When all this hubbub of rejoicing had subsided, Jutel and his companions broke to Heinz their plan of attempting to reach home by way of the Mississippi. As they had expected, he opposed it vehemently, declaring that, for his own part, he would not run such a risk of losing his head. But at length he consented to their departure, on condition that the elder cavalier should give him a certificate of his entire innocence of the murder of La Salle, which the priest did not hesitate to do. For the rest, Heinz treated his departing fellow-travellers with the generosity of a successful freebooter, for he gave them a good share of the plunder he had won by his late crime, supplying them with hatchets, knives, beads, and other articles of trade, besides several horses. Meanwhile, adds Jutel, we had the mortification and chagrin of seeing this scoundrel walking about the camp in a scarlet coat laced with gold, which had belonged to the late Monsieur de la Salle, and which he had seized upon, as also upon all the rest of his property. A well-aimed shot would have avenged the wrong, but Jutel was clearly a mild and moderate person, and the elder cavalier had constantly opposed all plans of violence. Therefore they stifled their emotions and armed themselves with patience. Jutel's party consisted, besides himself, of the cavaliers, uncle and nephew, Anastase Douay, de Marle, Tessier, and a young Parisian named Barthélemy. 
Tessier, an accomplice in the murders of Moringay and La Salle, had obtained a pardon in form from the elder cavalier. They had six horses and three Senes guides. Hines embraced them at parting, as did the ruffians who remained with him. Their course was northeast, toward the mouth of the Arkansas, a distant goal, the way to which was beset with so many dangers that their chance of reaching it seemed small. It was early in June, and the forests and prairies were green with the verdure of opening summer. They soon reached the Assanis, a tribe near the Sabine, who received them well, and gave them guides to the nations dwelling towards Red River. On the twenty-third they approached a village, the inhabitants of which, regarding them as curiosities of the first order, came out in a body to see them, and eager to do them honour, they required them to mount on their backs, and thus make their entrance in procession. Jutel, being large and heavy, weighed down his bearer, insomuch that two of his countrymen were forced to sustain him, one on each side. On arriving, an old chief washed their faces with warm water from an earthen pan, and then invited them to mount on a scaffold of canes, where they sat in the hot sun listening to four successive speeches of welcome, of which they understood not a word. At the village of another tribe, farther on their way, they met with a welcome still more oppressive. Cavalier, the unworthy successor of his brother, being represented as the chief of the party, became the principal victim of their attentions. They danced the calumet before him, while an Indian, taking him with an air of great respect by the shoulders as he sat, shook him in cadence with the thumping of the drum. They then placed two girls close beside him as his wives while at the same time an old chief tied a painted feather in his hair these proceedings so scandalized him that pretending to be ill he broke off the ceremony but they continued to sing all night with so much zeal that several of them were reduced to a state of complete exhaustion at length, after a journey of about two months, during which they lost one of their number, de Marle, accidentally drowned while bathing, the travellers approached the river Arkansas, at a point not far above its junction with the Mississippi. Led by their Indian guides, they traversed a rich district of plains and woods, and stood at length on the borders of the stream nestled beneath the forests of the farther shore they saw the lodges of a large indian town and here as they gazed across the broad current they presently descried an object which nerved their spent limbs and thrilled their homesick hearts with joy it was a tall wooden cross and near it was a small house built evidently by christian hands with one accord they fell on their knees and raised their hands to heaven in thanksgiving two men in european dress issued from the door of the house and fired their guns to salute the excited travellers who on their part replied with a volley canoes put out from the farther shore and ferried them to the town where they were welcomed by couture and delaunay two followers of henri de tanty 
that brave loyal and generous man always vigilant and always active beloved and feared alike by white men and by red had been ejected as we have seen by the agent of the governor la barre from the command of fort st louis of the illinois an order from the king had reinstated him and he no sooner heard the news of la salle's landing on the shores of the gulf and of the disastrous beginnings of his colony than he prepared on his own responsibility and at his own cost to go to his assistance he collected twenty-five frenchmen and eleven indians and set out from his fortified rock on the thirteenth of february sixteen eighty six descended the mississippi and reached its mouth in holy week all was solitude a voiceless desolation of river marsh and sea he dispatched canoes to the east and to the west searching the coast for some thirty leagues on either side finding no trace of his friend who at that moment was ranging the prairies of texas in no less fruitless search of his fatal river tanti wrote for him a letter which he left in the charge of an indian chief who preserved it with reverential care and gave it fourteen years after to iberville the founder of louisiana deeply disappointed at his failure tanti retraced his course and ascended the mississippi to the villages of the arkansas where some of his men volunteered to remain he left six of them and of this number were Couture and Delaunay. Cavalier and his companions, followed by a crowd of Indians, some carrying their baggage, some struggling for a view of the white strangers, entered the log cabin of their two hosts. Rude as it was, they found in it an earnest of peace and safety, and a foretaste of home. Couture and Delaunay were moved even to tears by the story of their disasters and of the catastrophe that crowned them. La Salle's death was carefully concealed from the Indians, many of whom had seen him on his descent of the Mississippi, and who regarded him with prodigious respect. They lavished all their hospitality on his followers, feasted them on cornbread, dried buffalo meat, and watermelons, and danced the calumet before them, the most august of all their ceremonies. On this occasion, Cavalier's patience failed him again, and, pretending as before to be ill, he called on his nephew to take his place. There were solemn dances, too, in which the warriors, some bedaubed with white clay, some with red, and some with both, some wearing feathers, and some the horns of buffalo, some naked, and some in painted shirts of deerskin, fringed with scalp-locks, insomuch, says Joutel, that they looked like a troop of devils, leaped, stamped, and howled from sunset till dawn. All this was partly to do the traveller's honour, and partly to extort presents. They made objections, however, when asked to furnish guides, and it was only by dint of great offers that four were at length procured. With these the travellers resumed their journey in a wooden canoe about the first of August, descended the arkansas and soon reached the dark and inexorable river so long the object of their search rolling like a destiny through its realms of solitude and shade 
they launched their canoe on its turbid bosom plied their oars against the current and slowly won their way upward following the writhings of this watery monster through canebrake swamp and fen it was a hard and toilsome journey under the sweltering sun of august now on the water now knee-deep in mud dragging their canoe through the unwholesome jungle on the nineteenth they passed the mouth of the ohio and their indian guides made it an offering of buffalo meat on the first of september they passed the missouri and soon after saw marquette's pictured rock and the line of craggy heights on the east shore marked on old french maps as the ruined castles then with a sense of relief they turned from the great river into the peaceful current of the illinois they were eleven days in ascending it in their large and heavy wooden canoe when at length on the afternoon of the fourteenth of september they saw towering above the forest and the river the cliff crowned with the palisades of fort st louis of the illinois as they drew near a troop of indians headed by a frenchman descended from the rock and fired their guns to salute them they landed and followed the forest path that led towards the fort when they were met by bois rondet tante's comrade in the iroquois war and two other frenchmen who no sooner saw them than they called out demanding where was la salle cavalier fearing lest he and his party would lose the advantage they might derive from his character of representative of his brother was determined to conceal his death and joutel as he himself confesses took part in the deceit substituting equivocation for falsehood they replied that la salle had been with them nearly as far as the senes villages and that when they parted he was in good health this so far as they were concerned was literally speaking true but douay and tessier the one a witness and the other a sharer in his death could not have said so much without a square falsehood and therefore evaded the inquiry threading the forest path and circling to the rear of the rock they climbed the rugged height and reached the top here they saw an area encircled by the palisades that fenced the brink of the cliff and by several dwellings a storehouse and a chapel there were indian lodges too for some of the red allies of the french made their abode with them tonti was absent fighting the iroquois but his lieutenant bellefontaine received the travellers and his little garrison of bushrangers greeted them with a salute of musketry mingled with the whooping of the indians a te deum followed at the chapel and with all our hearts says joutel we gave thanks to god who had preserved and guided us at length the tired travellers were among countrymen and friends Bellefontaine found a room for the two priests, while Joutel, Tessier, and young Cavalier were lodged in the storehouse. The Jesuit, Allouet, was lying ill at the fort, and Joutel, Cavalier, and Douay went to visit him. He showed great anxiety when told that La Salle was alive and on his way to the Illinois, asked many questions and could not hide his agitation. When some time after he had partially recovered, he left St. Louis, as if to shun a meeting with the object of his alarm. 
Once before, in 1679, Allouez had fled from the Illinois on hearing of the approach of La Salle. The season was late, and they were eager to hasten forward that they might reach Quebec in time to return to France in the autumn ships. There was not a day to lose. They bade farewell to Bellefontaine, from whom, as from all others, they had concealed the death of La Salle, and made their way across the country to Chicago. Here they were detained a week by a storm, and when at length they embarked in a canoe furnished by Bellefontaine, the tempest soon forced them to put back. On this they abandoned their design and returned to Fort St. Louis, to the astonishment of its inmates. It was October when they arrived, and meanwhile Tanti had returned from the Iroquois War, where he had borne a conspicuous part in the famous attack on the Senecas by the Marquis de Denonville. He listened with deep interest to the mournful story of his guests. Cavalier knew him well. He knew, so far as he was capable of knowing, his generous and disinterested character, his long and faithful attachment to La Salle, and the invaluable services he had rendered him. Tanti had every claim on his confidence and affection. Yet he did not hesitate to practice on him the same deceit which he had practiced on Bellefontaine. He told him that he had left his brother in good health on the Gulf of Mexico, and drew upon him, in La Salle's name, for an amount stated by Joutel, at about four thousand leaves, in furs, besides a canoe, and a quantity of other goods, all of which were delivered to him by the unsuspecting victim. This was at the end of the winter, when the old priest and his companions had been living for months on Tanti's hospitality. They set out for Canada on the 21st of March, reached Chicago on the 29th, and thence proceeded to Michilimackinac. Here Cavalier sold some of Tanti's furs to a merchant, who gave him in payment a draft on Montreal, thus putting him in funds for his voyage home. The party continued their journey in canoes by way of French River and the Ottawa, and safely reached Montreal on the 17th of July. Here they procured the clothing of which they were woefully in need, and then descended the river to Quebec, where they took lodging, some with the Recollet friars, and some with the priests of the seminary, in order to escape the questions of the curious. At the end of August they embarked for France, and early in October arrived safely at Rochelle. None of the party were men of a special energy or force of character, and yet, under the spur of a dire necessity, they had achieved one of the most adventurous journeys on record. Now, at length, they disburdened themselves of their gloomy secret. But the sole result seems to have been an order from the king for the arrest of the murderers, should they appear in Canada. Joutel was disappointed. It had been his hope throughout that the king would send a ship to the relief of the wretched band at Fort St. Louis of Texas, but Louis the Fourteenth hardened his heart and left them to their fate. End of chapter 28